Save anime. I'm host Emma Bowers. Joining me today is the final boss of my insane endeavor to make people talk about a violent Japanese cartoon show. He is the Onisan of Chapo Trap House and co-author of the manga Chapo Guide to Revolution, a manifesto against logic, facts, and reason, available in fine bookstores now. And here he is, fully fused of his Crunchyroll account, ladies and gentlemen, Will Meneker. Pod Save Anime. I'm listening. I am willing to pilot the Ava. For, for only this show. We'll get in the giant robot. <laughs> uh, okay, fine. <laughs> all right, so um, for, for all the mockery on um, left left Twitter sphere that you are a giant weeb. Yeah. Oh, are, are people mocking me? Uh, if so, I'd like uh, names, receipts. <laughs> It is. It has been multiple people. It was an unspoken. It was. Um, it was part of the Whisper Network for a very long time. I'd go up to my other fellow weebs. I'd be like, "You guys know Will Meneker from Chapo Chap House? He's a huge weeb." And everyone would look at me and go, "We know." <laughs> so they're making fun of me for something that they already are. It wasn't that. It was. Um, well, no. It, it goes back to that 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 meme, you know, and it's the you know jock shoving a nerd in the locker, and it sure. says. Kids who like anime, me who also likes anime. <laughs> so I'm the jock pushing them into the uh, the locker, or am it I is, the, the it nerd? It is at being... this point. It is an Ouroboros. It is impossible to tell who is pushing whom into the locker at this point. <laughs> <laughs> We're just consuming each other's self-loathing while consuming anime at a hyper intense, maddening speed. <laughs> Well, it has never been a better time in the world to uh, both hate yourself and consume anime. N- never has it been easier to do either of those things, thanks to the internet. No, it's been great. I've talked about the other guests. Um, I talk with guests who we remember like way back in the day, and now you can just do it. You can just roll up. I um, I recommended um, the the um, the artist of um, your book actually last night. I recommended um, Ellie Valley. I said you should read Berserk. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't block me. <laughs> okay, that's what because like his, his his sort of black and white style, that crazy kind of grotesquery is. Uh, yeah, sort of, that's is that's kind of what it was because there's the one. So in the Chapo Trap House book, there's this really really amazing taxonomy. Oh yeah, sorry, Ellie. Ellie was telling me about that, and he said that someone uh, approached him to uh, uh, compliment him on the um, accuracy of the anime figurines featured in one of his illustrations for uh, the fi- the character uh, of YouTube Logic Guy, which is one of our, uh, part of our right-wing taxonomy of, like, stock uh, right-wing monsters. And YouTube Logic Guy in, in Ellie's drawing is surrounded by a menagerie of uh, anime figurines and posters. And he said someone complimented him on the accuracy of them. He doesn't know anything at all about uh, anime. Uh, he he just sort of Googled, Google image searched and just sort of picked ones that looked interesting. I should have known it was you talking to him. Here's the thing. It actually was not. I talked to him previously when we'd interacted. And here's the really sad part. I actually know the person who said that to him. <laughs> well, you know, it's a small world yes. in the, the left, the left weeb averse. Yeah. So then I was just like, he was like, should I, should I watch these shows based on the characters I drew? And I said, hell no, because they're very bad. And then I just did what I always did. I'm like, what would he like? And yeah, and I just thought the the very elaborate like artwork, the grotesque designs. I was like, he might like Berserk, the manga. Uh, I think like the the, the the character he in question that someone pointed out was sort of like a uh, uh, sort of woman, uh, sort of secretary glasses, pigtails, but sort of a dominatrix outfit. Like she has a riding crop and like gigantic uh, bosoms. Yes, it's from. Uh, 
Yes, I, I hate to admit this, that I'm familiar with it, because I like to pretend I have good taste, but no, it's from this trashy anime called Prison School, and it's these juvenile delinquents who um, are basically sent to a school for delinquents, and they're just regularly beaten and humiliated by busty riding crop, you know, teachers or student council or whatever the hell. Sound Sounds pretty hot. Uh, I was going to say prison school. I thought that was just called school. Womp, womp, womp. <laughs> <laughs> schools, are, schools are prisons, folks. They are. Me. They are. Society is a prison, though, when you think about I've it. Read, I've read Michel Foucault, and I assume the, uh, the author of that, <laughs> that manga has as well. He actually has a really weird story where he used to write much more serious manga. He did this whole one about, I believe, blues culture in America in the 1930s. And no one was reading it. And he said, well, fuck you guys. I'm just going to make a dumb, big, booby, titty anime <laughs> manga. Big, titty manga. And it became <laughs> really popular. Well, just goes to show you, uh, that's what the, that's what the, you can't deny the, the public what they want. Uh, as long as we're talking about a, a, a manga right now, I just wanted to, uh, maybe at the beginning before we get into to golden, the golden Kamui, I want, to, uh, I want to talk a bit, and I wanted to ask you. I'm I'm reading a, a manga right now that is uh, excellent, and I'm uh, I'm I'm loving it. I'm on volume two. I started it a, a long time ago, uh, and then got through the first volume, and it was great. But like, I, for some reason, I never found the the other ones. And now I'm doing like the full dive. I'm I'm really psyched to to run through it. It is uh, Vinland Saga, the Viking manga. Yes. Oh, it, yes. It whips ass. The art, the story, so everything good. is fantastic. And it's, like, really well-researched, too. Um, it's, like, pretty historically accurate. I mean, despite some of, like, the cool... Fi- you know, the fighting stuff is, like, a little over the top. Co- I mean, cool as hell. But um, I'm, re- I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it's... Oh, man, I never finished it either. And as I've been mentioning, I'm kind of doing a big read-through of Berserk. So I got a while to go. But now that it's, like, available um, for legal consumption in the U.S. And it is getting an anime adaptation finally, I feel like... Oh, I, excellent. Yeah, excellent. I, I got to go back and read this. But that does go into my big question, which is um, for, for all my uh, light light jabs at your uh, your weebness, you actually have really, really, really good tastes. I know one of your most personal favorites is Ghost in the Shell. You love Blame, or as it's apparently called, Blame. I don't know why. Blame, yeah. Oh, Blame. Blame. I love the... <laughs> Blame. Blame. I love uh, Blame. And uh, the artist, uh, I'm, again, I butcher American names all the time, so you're going to have to help me here. Nihai? Um, Tsume? Nihai? Let's, let's, let's look it up, and then I can edit this so we pretend like yeah. we're doing. No, you, you can keep it in. I, like I said, I get English names wrong all the time. All right, let's But see. Uh, yeah, the guy who did uh, Blame and uh, mm-hmm. Biomega, are, both of those are fantastic uh, like top-notch at everything I like just like really uh, exquisite art um, and just like that really cool like kind of cyberpunk feel to it that, um, that but like also really scary and completely dystopian and then also Knights of Sidonia he did that as well it's also very very good that one's super good okay the artist I'm um, sorry the uh, the manga ka that's what we call the person who is writing and potentially drawing the manga is Tsutomu Nihei so, Nihei, yeah, yeah. So you were close. It was pretty close. Yeah, yeah, and speaking of gritty dystopia, this is this is one of those little dorky facts. Um, you are the one who got me into Dora Hidoro. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. Oh, I yeah. remember that. Yeah, like, and now you're you're, you're like this, you're like cosplaying half of those characters. No, now, yeah? I, I cosplayed it. I did like a little dumb video about why it's really good, and it. T- I mean, to me personally, I think it's one of the best manga that hasn't gotten an adaptation yet. Which is a shame, because same thing. It's just weird and gritty and dystopian. Uh, the, yeah, the artwork is also excellent. Um, I like all the uh, all the the wizards, uh, the, all the different masks they wear in that. Um, very very cool. Yeah, it's fantastic. But I guess my big question is: obviously, you've been into anime for a while, but my question is like, how? Like, I mean, how would you become a weeb? I mean, I mean, it's like a lateral move from you know, being like already, you know, vaguely dorky or I wouldn't even say vaguely, but, you know, into into comic books and art, you know, I, I, I drawing when I was a kid was a huge thing for me. Uh, sadly, I haven't seriously drawn in a long time, but um, I, I always loved comic books because of, because of the art. And I and I guess when I discovered, um, you know, Japanese comics, manga, 
the, the whole art style uh, was so uh, precise and exquisite and really like, uh, in a lot of ways, head and shoulders above a lot of uh, the American uh, comic art in a way. And it just like how exquisitely detailed uh, their visions of uh, of like a future society i used to really really into like blade runner and like future cities for some reason like i was really into that and like and and the manga artist just captured that in a way that was just so vivid and detailed and just light years beyond anything that uh american artists were doing and then you know a little bit later um through you know t cable television and things like that uh discovering you know obviously everyone's you know starter kit anime series cowboy bebop <laughs> it was sort of it was sort of the same thing i've always really loved um sci-fi and and things that are set in the future and things that um attempt to render a kind of realistic uh you know future world and society and and, and like i've always i've always yeah i've always just really liked the the, the details and the imagination and feel of that kind of thing and you know like and again like the in manga and anime that was like really the, the best you could find of that definitely and i almost feel kind of bad because and i i kind of knew this about you because of all the the manga we kind of chatted and weaved out about is you were more definitely into the science fiction stuff and uh here we are talking about the exact opposite and, and a a period piece if you will a very violent insane period piece and i I'm assuming all the listeners at home assume that I got you to come into this and I convinced you to watch all the episodes as I've done of a couple other previous guests who've just been really nice, but you're a busy man. So I know for a fact that you were watching this even before I came up with uh, the idea of a podcast. So yeah. how'd you hear about it? What got you into it? All that. <laughs> okay. I think, I mean, this one, I think you told me about. That makes you sense. told me about. You told me about the, the manga, and I think I read the first volume of the manga, and, you know, like, I, I, I always, like, have a problem. I always stop and start with these things, you know. I, like, I have a problem, like, really committing. But uh, the manga was great. Like, the, the plot of uh, Golden Kamui uh, pulled me in instantly. I thought it was, like, instantly kind of addictive, and it really – it had a really great, like, sort of spaghetti western quality to it, Um both in the you know the great uh, plot line about the escaped prisoners and finding the tattoos and the gold and a character in you know the immortal uh, our immortal lead uh, who is you know very spaghetti western very kind of Clint Eastwood character but what I also really liked about the show and the manga is also his relationship with uh, the Ainu girl yes <laughs> and all and is is great and um, all the details about um cooking the food they cook together and the the sort of you know wooded winter survival tactics i again i thought we're all very very well researched and very like credible and realistic but also uh all of the other characters it's just like it was so generous in how fucking cool and badass like all the characters are like you don't even really know who to root for because like all of the ancillary characters like whether they are the prisoners or people from the mil the you know sort of re rebel military unit are all just like so they're all just such badasses and like I I really appreciate like I said that kind of spaghetti western good to bad and the ugly quality where it's just like whether it's Lee Van Cleef Clint Eastwood or Eli Wallach like you don't really know who to root for because they're all so fucking cool yeah that's something I've talked about a lot previously which is all the characters even the ones who we've all kind of like dubbed officially like oh that guy's like trash you know um yeah no everyone is great there's no character where I get annoyed or upset when they're on screen everyone's just cool and engaging and interesting and a lot of other people have brought the spaghetti western thing too but that's another reason I was really excited that you got into it because um, you studied film briefly in school, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so this series is just full of, like, film references, and I'm sure that you noticed that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, actually, th that that aspect of it really didn't stick out so much for me. Like, we'll, we'll give me an example. Maybe it'll jar my uh, memory. 
Um, just little ridiculous gestures. Um, um, Surumi, the uh, scary Richard Haro guy, like cuts off a guy's ear and then screams into it like Reservoir Dogs. Oh, okay. There's um, when the orca eats someone, like it's clearly like a bizarre homage to like that Jaws knockoff orca that came out oh, in the seventies. Okay. A lot of the spaghetti westerns. Um, the manga keeps going into this a little bit more. There's a gag from Shawshank Redemption. There are two characters who are clearly model off of Bonnie and Clyde. And um, yeah, Noda, the, the guy who writes it, just really loves his references. But of course, you pointed out the main one, which is very, very, very much. This is not a this is not the Chanbara. This is not the Kurosawa films. This is very much a spaghetti Western retold in, um, in Japan. And, you know, like to the point about that, it, it is a period piece. It takes place in the, the early 20th century or, uh, and, and also like, uh, again, like the opening scene of, uh, which is a, a real battle in the, uh, Russo Japanese war. Uh, again, like a very sort of lost bit of history, that war between Russia and Japan, where, uh, basically, uh, the Russian Empire. This is the first time that, like, the, the the modern Japanese military, like a what sort of Westernized military, um, sort of flexed its muscles against the Russian Empire, and uh, they were huge underdogs, but they completely washed the Russians, and it was a huge uh, embarrassment for for Russia, and a huge victory for Japan. But that uh, brutal opening scene of the uh, assault on that hill, where it's just every everybody just gets mowed down with those machi- Maxim machine guns. Uh, yeah, that was like instantly pulled me in. But again, like to the point about it's a period piece. And what I said, what originally attracted me to, to so many of the, the mangas that I liked was the, the sci-fi and futuristic element. I feel it, a lot of it is really the same thing. It's the, uh, the research and attention to detail that really sells it and draws you in in a way that I think a lot of Again, a lot of American uh, comic art uh, struggles to achieve a, that same kind of uh, verisimilitude, or like, like even in, even in how ridiculous and over the top most manga are, it's like the the, the selling of it. Um, is in the detail, and I, I always really appreciated that. No, I like that, and it's ugh, it's such an overused word now, but world building, you know? You, yeah, you, exactly. You want to feel like this world is fully thought out, and you want to feel like if you... Like you imagine, like the, 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 like you imagine, like, you, you know, in your mind when you're when you're reading it or communing with a work of, uh, you know, comic fiction, like, you, you, you imagine the characters existing in this place and time, you know? And, like, like that's... That yeah, that's the world building. That's what sells it. Yeah, but yeah, Golden Kamui kills at that. So right, this is this is my big yeah. question. I was I was excited to ask you. So, <laughs> all right, pop quiz, hot shot. You want to pitch Golden Kamui to HBO, but it's a cartoon, and the characters have names you can't pronounce. How do you spin this amazing show into an Americanized version? Okay, well. I mean, it is like, you know, it's it's ready-made to be done if someone wanted to do it. And, you know, leaving aside the uh, uh, question of, uh, you know, cultural appropriation and whether it is appropriate to, you know, fully westernize uh, a product of uh, another culture in Japan in this case, uh, I think it definitely could be done and I think it would be awesome. Now, the question is, obviously, like the Western theme, you would think... The easiest way to do this, you know, would be Civil War veteran and uh, American Indian as like the like, you know, the interaction between the soldier and the girl, those two characters. However, what makes Golden Kamui uh, so special is the winter setting that is very different than most Westerns that take place in, you know, the desert or, you know, you know, the Monument Valley, like a John Ford movie or something like that. So you could possibly do it in like the the Yukon or parts of Colorado. However, again, like I, I still think the early 20th century is like an interesting moment as well. So I thought the way around it would be to do it about a World War One veteran, an American World War One veteran in around, you know, 1918 or like the early 1920s in Alaska and and have it have a and have a uh, and have it be like a, an Inuit uh, girl instead of the the Ainu uh, culture, but again and, and this is sort of the problem with Westernizing it. Such a big part of Golden Kamui 
is the its depiction of the the Ainu culture, the sort of indigenous peoples of northern Japan. This is very specific. So again, you would have to accept that it would be, if you can accept that a westernized version is appropriate, then I, I think that would be the way to do it. And I, I've talked about this with other people, and we all went to civil war, and. I'm very delighted that you said World War One because that does make a lot more sense just because I do feel like there are kind of themes of Golden Kamui that kind of go back to the problems, you know, vets who came home from World War One had about just, you know, this, this technology that had just caught up so horrifically. So you had people coming home missing half their face and no more limbs, you know? Like, that wasn't mm-hmm. a thing in the Civil War. If you lost all your limbs, you were dead. And technology was just good enough, you know, for better or worse at the end of World War One that, you know, you could survive all your limbs. Did you want to? Probably not. And Golden Kamui does talk a lot about, you know, you do get characters and there's um the big themes if a uh, Lieutenant Surumi and, you know, kind of the, the rogue, you know, seventh division is they're acquiring weapons. And these are, you mm-hmm. know, weapons even by our standards are, you know, nothing to really laugh at. So I like that you jumped it up a bit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I just thought the, uh, yeah, I thought, I thought Alaska, like, 1920s era would be, would fit the overall feel of the show better than a civil war that would be, that would eventually, it would, it would be, oh, it would by definition be a cowboys and Indians story. And I think uh, that has so much baggage in, like, American film and history and culture that that would be more of a bastardization than, like, I think a slightly different uh, take and location and setting would 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 bring to it. There'd be a little bit more in keeping with what what the show what the show and the source material is. Definitely. And uh, so speaking of uh, HBO, this this is the final episode, so we get uh, we get an homage to um, <laughs> the the most. I I don't know if it's the weirdest HBO show, but it for me will always be the most iconic. Um, luck. The show where all the horses. Oh wow! The show that all the, the show that killed a horse. dozen horses. Yep, all the horses. And not only killed, not only killed a dozen horses, but probably ruined David Milch's life by kicking his gambling addiction into overdrive. Have you ever read the Hollywood Reporter profile about him? No. That documents how he lost, literally lost, thirty million dollars gambling at the racetrack, gambling. Like, this is the level of his gambling addiction on horses. Everyone who knew him said he was an incredible handicapper. He had, like, an incredible knack for uh, for betting on horses. Um, but, like, his addiction to it was such that it compelled him to go to the racetrack every day and bet on every single race, which is, like, if you're a serious gambler, is insane. It, it, it makes no sense. But, uh, yeah, he had to, like, be have his whole estate put into receivership and I think is like you know declared bankruptcy and I think his wife gave him allowance David Milch brilliant guy brilliant writer uh troubled man in some ways yeah how many horses died on that because I want to say it was three but it was it was not 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 that many but I <laughs> More mean than that, that is the funny thing you know well I mean that is that is the irony of that that you know people were so outraged by uh the horses that died on luck and I guess as they they should be you know I don't think you know animals should die for a, a TV show but the sport of horse racing kills the horses all the fucking time and everyone's still fine with that as long as it's just a sport but if a TV show does it you know that it gets canceled you know horse racing Dog racing, even worse, should probably be canceled as well. If we really, if we really care about horses and animals and whatnot. I remember this because around the same time Luck was coming out, Newsroom was coming out, and oh, yeah, God, and me yeah. and my friend, and I will say this: like um, my friend is a lot more um, liberal than I am, and we've had our you know disagreements about certain things in the past. And even her, and she loved Aaron Sorkin, loved The West Wing, you know. She hated Newsroom. We both did. We despised her passion. And she told me, and I will never forget that she looked at me and she was like, maybe some horses will die and they'll have to cancel Newsroom. Maybe they'll have, maybe they'll have to put Jeff Daniels down. Daniels down. I don't know. Something about the Newsroom, man. Like, 
Aaron Sorkin and like his, oh. his his women characters have always been kind of thing, but man, like something about the newsroom, he really kicked the misogyny into overdrive on that show. I remember the moment where I went from this is watchable to fuck you, and it was that fucking, ugh, and I feel bad because you guys did a whole episode on why newsroom is bad, and I was like, never need to talk about this again, but <laughs> it comes back. Um, it was that fucking scene where um, uh, there was that shooting in Tucson, uh, Gabby Giffords, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that shooting in Tucson, and they're like, Gabby Giffords is dead, and, and Jeff Newsroom is like, <laughs> yeah. no. I, they're like, call it. They're calling it like he's a goddamn sniper. Like, take the shot. Take the shot, Jeff. He's like, no, because I have conviction. And they're playing that fucking Coldplay song, and he holds his ground, and Gabby Giffords is alive. And I was just fucking, I was screaming at the TV. And that is the moment, that is the moment when he says to his producer, you're a goddamn newsman. Don't everyone, don't anyone ever let you tell you otherwise? Because he backed him up on you know not taking not taking a second shot on Gabby Giffords and killing her again <laughs> on the news. I was so N- mad. News I was assassin- just, news killing her. I was just screaming at the TV. I was like, uh, "Fuck to this!" Me, to me, the scene that that sums up that show. I know we're here to talk about another one, but yeah. as long as we're on, we it, always go off the on scene this. where the scene where he has a, a date with a a woman played by Catherine Han. Catherine Han who is like supposedly a Hillary Clinton liberal who also has like carries a hand, right. has a handgun in her purse and he's like at back at her apartment you know ready to smash and they're going to like smoke a joint or something and she's like yeah just go in my purse and he finds a handgun and then rather than have sex with this woman he chooses to engage in some awful debate about the second amendment and you know tr- trying to prove to her how wrong she is about like how a handgun will keep her safe in the the mean streets of midtown manhattan are you fucking kidding me but uh and in that scene he tries to say like oh you know if you have a gun it'll just get taken away from you and used on you and to, to emphasize that point he takes her gun away from her and points it at her head i dude i don't know it, too, too much cocaine uh, for Aaron Sorkin. Stop. Bad. Yeah. Very bad, Aaron. Not a good situation. <laughs> bad. But going back to the the horse brutality of horse racing, like that's one of those things. Like I said, the show's well researched, and it's well researched in I knew culture, and here's how you know we set traps, and to oh, so here's how we basically like rig the the system, you know, like yeah with the horses. Like I said, all. Yeah, all of the, all of the the, like woodland survival techniques are uh, so well done and so interesting. Uh, like yeah, all of the kind of traditional, um, like the uh, all the traditional methods of uh, these indigenous peoples who have been living this 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 lifestyle for like centuries and this like this knowledge that's passed down about how to, you know, survive and not just survive but like thrive. In a situation like you know, there like there's food everywhere, and you know you can live if you just know how to do it. But like knowing how to do it is so uh, exquisitely difficult, and kind of like it's such an art to it. Like all the all the traps that that, uh, that she makes. What is the, I'm sorry. What is the girl's character name? Her name is Asherpa. 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 Yeah. Do, yeah. do not all... feel bad. Like um, I've been taking notes on everyone who's given the characters other names. They're all really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and you know like on on the the, the first or, or second episode like when they go into her little uh hunting hutch i just thought man that would be so nice to have a little a little pine pine tree hut in the woods with a little uh like little iron you know uh kettle for cooking uh, delicious stews and soups from a squirrel this is this is the question i always ask a lot of my guests like because they eat they eat everything on the show and they eat squirrel brains and they eat orca and they eat horses and they eat you know all sorts they of talk over they, <laughs> they talk repeatedly she t- a sherpa tells him that the brains are like the best part of any animal that you kill in the forest and it's particularly a uh, deer if, if you if you screw up and you don't kill a deer like you don't take it by surprise and kill it instantly, and it dies in a state of uh, you know panic and adrenaline coursing through its body. Like it makes the meat uh, not as tender and good. It gives it a bitter a bitter flavor. But she says you still can always eat the brain. Yes, I don't know the how the brain always I, I tastes good. Yeah, I don't know how it's been thirteen episodes yet, and she hasn't gotten Kiru Kuru. So I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of her. I guess she's too strong and reserved. What's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten? 
Oh man. Uh, sea turtle. Sea, sea turtle. Sea turtle. You ate sea turtle. Yeah, in the in the Cayman Islands, uh, I had uh, sea turtle. It was um, not very good. Oh. Would would not do again. Oh man! See, my my previous guest is a um, well known man from uh, South African origins. Actually, um, comes from comes from wealth, a little bit of entrepreneur, and uh, he told me the weirdest thing he ever ate was wildebeest as a child in South Africa, and he said he Wait. loved it. So you had Elon Musk on the show before me? I, I won't say that. I'll just say I had a, I had a man of South African descent of high standing. <laughs> Adam Friedland? <laughs> you have to, now you got to watch the episodes and find out. You're like... Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. All right. All right. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I almost was like, I think, I think he, has, he has everyone else topped on the show for the weirdest thing they've eaten. Was Wildebeest. Wildebeest, yeah. Said okay. it was a Hina okay, Hina. I, I mean, I could see it. Yeah. Hina Hina, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, and like when when she shows him, um, obviously uh, trapping squirrels. Uh, again, not a lot of meat there, um, but her technique of just chopping everything up, including the bones and the brains and some of the organs, and just chopping it up all finely until it becomes just like a mush, and then making meatballs out of it. I was like, what a brilliant way to get all of the nutrients in this like small little rodent. Yeah, I ate, um, I had guinea pig in Ecuador, and it's very tasty, mm. but there's not a lot. You know, it's a small animal, which is funny, because it was selectively bred for food. That's the reason they're domesticated. Then someone was like, oh, let's keep them as pets, but... Oh, they're cute, you know, yeah. They're, they're super cute, but they're, like, they're they're tiny. And now I feel bad, because, like, I know your love of the capybara, and I'm like, capybara probably sure. tastes very similar to guinea pig. <laughs> Well, they are just giant guinea pigs. They are, and this is my favorite fact. They got a lot more meat on their bones, for sure. And uh, this is my favorite fact about capybara. You can eat them on length. They don't count. They they count as a fish. Oh, they're fit. Well, you know, they're giant water rats. Yeah, they they swim, so therefore they're a fish, and you can have them on length. I'm glad the uh, the Catholic Church has weighed in on that. No, they got their priorities. They got their priorities on what's what's important, you know. Women's rights, (laughs) you know, making sure... Yeah, the the Pennsylvania Diocese was, uh, you know, (laughs) wondering about the capybara question uh, too long and hard. Yep. Got him. Got him just just a little distracted to other methods, but, you know, it's, it's important. People... People got to make sure they know what they can eat during Lent. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is kind of a fun episode for me because, like I said, it goes into the kind of this culture of horse racing. And there's that that scene where um, the the one guy, Kiroanke, who, you know, is a horse guy. And they've said in previous episodes he's not from Japan. He's from what are probably the, um, the Uzbek people or a tribe in that area, and he's made his way to Japan, and he just kind of rolls up into the horse stables, and these guys are like, we gotta rig the race, you know, put, put water down this horse's stomach, drown it. <laughs> uh, we, remind me again, which guy was that? Is that uh, he's um, the guy, and he's, he's an Ainu too, so he has the robes on. He, yeah. Okay, so he's like, uh, he's a Sherpa's uncle, uh, right? He's, he's not her uncle, he's a friend of her father's, and that's okay, his origin. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and this is the episode where they reveal that her father is like the the, the patient zero for this the prisoner breakout and gold scheme. It is, right? and then this is the one at the horse racing. So it's the one with okay, the, yeah, the yeah. horse racing, and we also meet Inkermat, who she only shows up in this one episode, but she kind of she's the sort of gypsy yes, uh, yes, lady, right? They're called okay, Roma she's now. Fortune teller, and she. <laughs> Yeah, Roman. Sorry, Roman. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, no, but she's the she's the fortune teller and the kind of con artist. Yes, who's also I knew. Right? Yes, and she okay. is only in this one, but she becomes a much more prominent figure in the manga. So it's um, again like all these kind of like these what seemingly minor characters are all just very cool. Like they all just you sort of immediately are into them when whenever they show up. Like for me, like for me, like of of the, those characters uh, of the prisoners. My favorite is the bear hunting guy. Oh, um, I think his name is Nihei too. Actually, speaking of really, yeah, uh, yes, uh, I loved, I loved, loved uh, the bear hunter guy. Uh, he was so badass. Oh, he's he's great. Um, another guest mentioned he kind of reminded him of like a Sam Elliott character. And yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I I don't know if you listen to the sub or the dub. And the dub, he he kind of reminds me of Wilford Brimley. <laughs> I, I I watched the subs. Ah, you're purist. I did not watch the dubs. Yes, exactly. Uh, no, I love I love the the sort of flashback where it tells about how he got 
in prison in the first place. Yes. And it's like the uh, the poachers are killing hunters and taking their, you know, uh, taking their kill and robbing them. And like these three assholes just like come across him and they're like, oh, this is an easy one. But they're going up against the guy who is like the toughest woodsman ever. And they take their shot and miss. And then he just is like, I don't even need a gun to kill you. Like, you're not even worth it. Like, you're low. I wouldn't even, like, I wouldn't kill a dog with a gun. And like, I, I don't even need it for you. And he takes like days tracking them each down and killing them with his bare hands. <laughs> and he goes, I, I, you better, he says, when I hunt, I take my life in my hands every time. I, every time I go out, I think I'm going to be animal shit. So if you take a shot at me, you better be ready to do the same. Oh, he's, he's great. He's that fucking, uh, you come at the king, you better not miss, you know? And he has, yeah, yeah. And exactly. Yeah. Like, and his whole technique for, uh, for killing, hibernating bears the one bullet. Insane, I love that shit is that he, he sends his Shiba dog <laughs> down there and tells the dog if it's a woman bear to, to rape her to just have her like just attack this bear get it out of its hole and you're like yards away it's gonna burst out of this burrow like insane with anger and just charge at you and he has a rifle that uh, has only one in the chamber no time you can't reload like it's not like a repeating rifle like the uh, the Seventh Division guys have, um, or even a bolt action repeater. Uh, it's just one shot, one big ass bullet, and he's like, "I only hunt with one bullet because if you think you're gonna have a chance to take a second shot, you're already dead." Yeah, he's he's great. I and I almost love these side characters because each one of them could kind of have their own story. Yeah, def- yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. Like that's what I feel like. You could follow any one of these like uh, supporting characters off on their own in this same world, and it would be like just as cool. No, they're all they're all fantastic, and I I always go back. I feel it's because each one of them has a motivation. No one in this series is passive. Everyone's super proactive, and they're working towards a goal. And of course, you know, like all your good story, you know, screenwriting professors tell you at the first day of you know your community college screenwriting class, the best. Um, the best conflict is when one character's goals get in the way of another character's goals. And I think that's just um, just really, like, just fantastic in terms of the storytelling and stuff. Well, I mean, they have a, the great sort of MacGuffin uh, of uh, both the gold, obviously, but also the tattoos. So, like, you always know that there's going to be, an, like, there's uh, how many prisoners are there? Um, I want to say twenty four. Yeah, twenty four. So like you know, like you know that they're gonna have this like this roster. Like there's there's always more out there, and they got you know you're gonna meet every one of these people eventually, and they're and they're all like and they're all just cool master criminals in different ways. Like I said, like the the ultimate huntsman guy, the serial killer guy, the escape artist, the dude who's just like. Who has like a plate in his forehead? Who's like oh, the strong? The strong yeah, who's like guy. the the horny strongman? Yes. Um, like they all have like their different superpowers in a way uh, that that are all like you know instantly cool and uh, like different. Yeah, and the, the, here's the best part. Like I said, I'm I'm reading the manga right now. I'm caught up with it, and it never lets down. There hasn't been a tattooed convict yet who's been introduced, and I've been like, mm, that guy was kind of lame. Like each one of them is just great they could just have their own story completely um i'm trying to think of who's showing up because there's going to be a next season in october and uh, the show's kind of great because you're like oh like you guys cannot you can't top like the the horny serial killer and they do <laughs> the show is just continuously like topping and outdoing itself yeah and you have your you have your you have your protagonists in uh immortal say his name for me Sugimoto, the immortal Sugimoto, and and Sherpa, who make a great team together. But like, yeah, you're always just wondering, like, how are they going to face off against like the next, the next heavy? You know, like what it like how like you know how is that showdown going to look, or, or how is it going to turn out? But also, uh, the the seventh division guys are also very cool. The oh, the villain the villain the villain is very scary. The guy with the the, the top, yeah, the Richard Harrow guy who had like the top yes. of his skull blown off and wears like a metal cap, like a metal <laughs> yarmulke on the front of his face. Uh, he's he's Sorry, super scary. Sorry, I'm laughing now. I'm, I'm laughing now at a Surumi talking about a facts and logic before biting yeah, someone's yeah. finger off. <laughs> yeah, no, the the but yeah, he bites people. Um, the the sniper guy is really cool too. Oh, and- Ogata, yes, he's. 
I, I go into this a lot with people who have read the manga. He's great because you're always like, okay, there has to be some level of sympathy we're going to have for this guy. Something to learn why he's so fucked up. And I don't want to give it away because I think it's going to probably show up um, in the next season. But you do learn about his backstory. And all his backstory does is prove that he was just, a, he's always been a terrible, <laughs> shitty sniper human being. Yeah, um, but also like the, the the line, like again, likes the spaghetti western model, like the like like I said with the good, the bad, and the ugly, like the line between hero and villain is like is very is very blurred. Like obviously there are these uh, you know relentless and very formidable antagonists to our our two main characters, but at the same time, like you said, like their their motivations and their backstory are always such that there, there's always. Like, they're not just pure. They're not just pure evil or pure villains. It's like I said, you don't. You can almost root for anyone on this show, with a, a few exceptions. Yeah, everyone's. Um, how do I put this? I'm gonna like kind of paraphrase someone from a different manga I really liked, but they said um, everyone's kind of. Everyone has their own goals, and everyone's going about them in different ways. And in a way, this is sort of good because it allows the two leads, Sugimoto and Ashurpa, to always be. Sugimoto and Ashurpa. It's not a predestined, you're the chosen one. Sugimoto and Ashurpa aren't like, we gotta go save the world, we gotta become the, the pirate kings or the Hokages or whatever. They're two people with a very specific goal. We gotta collect these skins and we're gonna find the gold. And that's important. And you know, Sugimoto, he's the hero, but he's also mercenary. He's out for himself or no, he's no, he wants the gold because he's going to give it to the widow yeah. of his best friend, but which I guess is like kind of noble, but I mean, he's just as, uh, you know, ruthless and violent as like he everyone is, else. And on one the of the big things I kind of enjoy about the show and going back to why I kind of dug that you said this would fit into world war one setting is everyone on the show who fought in the war is really, really fucked up. And there's not a word at this time for PTSD, but it's clearly implied like Sugimoto kind of can't return to society. Like he just is a little too damaged. He doesn't know what to do. And to be fair, neither does, you know, um, Surumi missing half his fucking head or Ogata being a crazy sniper. Even um, um, Tanagaki, who um, he's the soldier who like got his leg wounded and hangs out for Sherpa's family. And he seems like a nice enough guy. But as we learn, he has his own reasons for not really returning to like, quote unquote, polite society. Yeah. And like the whole the whole seventh division, like the 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 chess match between the prisoners and the seventh division and the showdown between them that Ashurpa and Sugimoto are in the middle of they're they're sort of like the third tri you know, the apex of the triangle uh you know in this kind of what, like what I mean is like the seventh division guys like the, their motivation uh the Richard Harrow guy they want to create their own state they're looking to the gold because they want to have a coup and make the island of Hokkaido their own that is like a state for the veterans who they're were they're gonna make an outer felt, haven <laughs> Yeah, an outer head, exactly. Yes, exactly. Very big boss, you know, yeah. uh, uh, because they were they felt uh, betrayed that by that they were ordered into this suicide suicide charge on this position on that hill uh, from a bad commanding officer and like the the scars of that and all of their comrades who were uh, you know killed needlessly. Like this is why they're doing it. Definitely. Um, all right, I have to ask you, because, like, this is, this is the horse episode, like, and here's the thing, like, I mean, obviously we're talking about kind of intense themes, like serial killers, um, you know, um, coup, potential coups, you know, damaged, broken people, and for the final episode of the season, it reminded me, like, it reminds me, it's a very silly episode, and it gave me, like, hardcore Marx Brothers Day at the Races vibes. <laughs> the most problematic yeah, of the Marx yeah, Brothers films. A sort of a, sort of a, a Hugo Hackenbush uh, figure. It did, it did. I I always get sad. I grew up watching the Marx Brothers films. My my folks were really into them, so I got into them. And when I was a kid, I loved Day at the Races, and I rewatched it, and I was just like, oh no. <laughs> well, uh, Day at the Races is great. Uh, it's one of the one of the best Marx Brothers movies. However, there is that like big musical number in the uh, black yep. part of yeah. that. that is. Uh, you can guess where this know, is going. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, mm. You know, it was a different era. It, it is, but it's just, you know, it's the weird thing. And I've, I've talked with other guests in terms of not 
blackface, but in terms of, you know, maybe words and playground slurs you said as a youth. Uh, you know, <laughs> Groucho had like a, a line or two about darkies or something like that. You know, yeah. Not good. Yeah, and... Ba- a bad, do better, Marx Brothers. Yeah, do do better. And it's weird because, I mean, I think about that a lot. I think about, like, what's... It was a different time and what's... Well, you, you still shouldn't have been a dick, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but... Probably probably still pretty racist even by the conventions of that... Uh, of its day. Yeah, and what's weird is I remember once, like, I think it was Twitter and someone was, like, trying to make some quote where they were like, oh, Groucho Marx was really woke and I think I intentionally went and found that scene and linked it to them. It's like, <laughs> okay, you were saying... And it's like, it's like, it's like a 20-minute musical number. It goes too. on it's, and on yeah. and on. It's It's... Oh, I, I, there just has to be like an edited version. I forget what they're doing. I think it's just Hugo Hackenbush and the gang like escaping from like they've been they've been outed as like um, yeah that that's the horse doctor one. I don't know why I'm like what's the one where he's a horse doctor? Could it be the movie where it involves horses? <laughs> but <laughs> well, no, that you uh, easily to, you could have easily gotten that confused with the other Marx Brothers film, Horse Feathers. But that's a college, which is one. not actually about horses. Horse Feathers, yeah, it's about uh, yeah a university. I feel like I saw every single Marx Brother movie, like growing up. Mm. I feel like I honestly did. I would say you know watch uh, Duck Soup, yes, which is I think the I think the best one, and uh, I don't think there are problematic. I mean Harpo is all Harpo is always sort of problematic because he is like sort of a a mute psycho rapist and like you know he you know the way uh, he like sneaks into women's rooms and like you know does his little mute act. I, on them. Well, it's you're overlooking very, you're overlooking the most Harpo is a scary character. No, but you're looking the most problematic of the Marx Brothers is Chico because he's so crude. Oh, anti-Italian racism. Yeah, anti-Italian. Yeah. <laughs> A, a good and prideful people, and he's just here. He is as a Jewish man, just mocking them and their culture. He's like, I, I do a good boss, right? No, the 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 my favorite the courtroom scene in uh, in Duck Soup where um, Groucho is uh, cross examining uh, Chico, and uh, Zizek actually talks about this line. My my favorite line is when he goes, "Your Honor, my client looks like." <laughs> He talks like an idiot. But, but don't let that fool you. you. He, he really is an idiot. Is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. Duck soup is the best one, and I would just really simplify it if you're like, what are they talking about? I've never watched Marx Brothers. Watch Duck Soup because, one, um, no side story, no two random lovers no one cares about, no exactly. as talented as they are, no stopping the movie to see Chico and Harpo play their instruments. It's just boom, boom, yeah, boom. Yeah. And also, no blackface scene that goes on for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's making fun of the national security state and uh, an empire. It is, it is. Oh, sorry, like, I... Oh. I used to like know all of um I don't even remember the name of the song but it's when Groucho shows up and he's like I'm in charge now and he has the rules of my administration, administration. <laughs> the rules of my administration uh, uh, if anyone gets gets caught taking graph and I don't get my share then it's up against the wall and pop goes the weasel <laughs> was it the last man nearly ruined his place he didn't know what to do with it if you think you're paying too much now just wait till I get through with it <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> All right, new podcast, everyone. Yeah, of Mark's, Mark's, this is now a Marx Brothers uh, This is podcast. now the Marx Brothers podcast. <laughs> um, but like I said, I I don't know. I'm just, these, these shows I've been having always kind of go and talk about other things. But for me, that's kind of been the highlight of doing the podcast is just you, you trick people. You're like, come on and talk about this thing. And then you have a conversation with a friend. That's cool. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. See, yeah. this is an anime uh, brings us all together. It really does. And it, it's, it, it opens up uh, new horizons uh, for all of no, us. No, it does, and I um, I'm happy that uh, you know you've gotten people like the Balling Out Super Podcast and even some episodes of Struggle Sessions because there was the stigma for a really long time that like oh well the people who watch anime are all like crazy Nazis you know and you're getting yeah. like cussed out and getting sent death threats by someone if like. Uh, the love live icon like some little waifu like fuck you you cunt i know where you live well well there are plenty of them there are uh, they haven't no gone no away i'm not of, saying of that them. yeah yeah uh yeah no i mean like uh you know when i did a uh, balling out super again like that 
I've just, that put me back on the Dragon Ball Z thing, which is again, uh, you know, talking about like how I got into this early. It was like a Saturday morning cartoon, and we've talked about this before, like the bizarre thing in America where they would just like get halfway through. A, like a season and then just restart yes, it because yes. they didn't have an, they didn't have the rights for enough our of it. generation so sissyfus <laughs> yeah yeah oh my yeah that's exactly what it was like i was you know i watched dragon ball z as a kid and it was only the second season and i swear to god i drove myself crazy just waiting for him to get to king kai and he never did he was on snake's way for like for eternity and that's sort of that sort of felt like watching it getting restarted but yeah, no, I feel like I return to these things now because, you know, in my, you know, 30s, you know, every time I have to pass uh, through another, uh, you know, horrible, uh, I don't know, horrible trial and tribulation of adulthood, be it, you know, paying taxes or, you know, whatever. I feel like every time I have to take one step in that direction, I take another two steps back in terms of my emotional degeneration back into just being a 12-year-old again. Like, I have to do it. I get it because I feel like I'm, like I said, like we're similar in age, and I feel like I'm probably the most um, productive, most, like, responsible, most, I'd say almost like probably like I'm probably a lot more emotionally and mentally better than I've been in a very, very long time in my life. And this is probably, like, the peak of my life where I'm watching the most anime. And I've always kind of liked anime, but I've had my, like, oh, I'm not watching that much. Or, yeah, I was sort of into it. And, um, no, I mean, um, I feel like at this point it's almost like, well, I've done everything. I've handled myself emotionally. I've dealt, like I said, the, the trials and tribulations of being an adult, you know, um, doing productive things in my life. And now not only am I going to, like, watch, like, five hours of cartoons, I'm going to get online and talk about it to an audience that I've somehow acquired. <laughs> well, Who's... yeah, now, now, now thanks to Crunchyroll, I can finally see him get to King Kai and, and fight, uh, you know, uh, Nappa and Vegeta, finally. And now, and now I know, and now I know what Frieza is all about, you know, so... Your producer has mentioned, um, he mentioned it on Ballin' Out Super, and he even mentioned to me in person, he said, anytime we go over to Will House now, it is paused on Dragon Ball. Yeah. How far are you into it now, out of curiosity? I've, I've taken a break because, God, I mean, there are so many, ep- there's like 40 episodes in a season. I'm about halfway through season three, the, the Namek saga. Right. They haven't even started fighting Frieza yet. Frieza's just still sitting in a little, like, his little wheelchair pod being evil. <laughs> I don't think Goku has even gotten to Namek yet. It, it, again, like, Dragon Ball's very odd. Everyone's always just going somewhere, and it takes them fucking forever. It's like waiting for Godot. It's just oh like <laughs> waiting for Goku. Waiting for Goku. That, that, that should be the name of the new Dragon Ball Z anime podcast. No disrespect to Balling Out Super. Oh. But wait, waiting for Goku. Because watching that show, is, that's what it feels like. All right. Tell you what. I This is the last episode where I'm talking about Golden Kamui unless I decided to do a second season. I, I mostly just did this because I was like, I don't know, maybe a podcast would be fun. And I just want to talk to people about Golden Kamui. And I'll probably do others. But, you know, if something happens or I just decide to ultimately betray the Ballin' Out Super Crew, who have been nothing but good and kind to me, that'll be the title. Waiting for Goku. <laughs> Waiting for Goku could be, a, it could be like all-purpose uh, anime discussion. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, fuck. Now I'm kind of like, I shouldn't have, I, nah. I gotta, I gotta go back. I gotta go back, redub all my intros. Positive is <laughs> not waiting for Goku. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, I had the same thing with um. I think when you watch something in your youth, you're watching it weekly, and you're not aware of how long it goes on. Because I had the same problem with Naruto. I was like, I'm gonna rewatch Naruto because it gave me pleasant memories as a child. By child, I mean an 18-year-old. But I tried to rewatch it the other year, and I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I mean, not Goku, but just they're all ninja running to a place, you know? I've never watched Naruto. I, I know, I know, like, I recognize it when I see it, and I know the Naruto run. I know that, that's basically all I know about uh, Naruto. You know me. I love to recommend shit to you. I can't recommend you Naruto in good faith. Like, Yeah, no, I, it, it, honestly, the look of it just never, never cotton to you know i didn't get it oh uh <coughs> let me recommend one i don't know if i've ever talked to you about <coughs> excuse me about this series 
It's it's both a manga and an anime. There there was one season of it available on Netflix. I think it's still there. I don't think they ever made a second series, which is a tragedy because it was one of the best I've ever seen. And I, it did compel me to read the entire manga, which was incredible. Uh, are you familiar with... Again, pronunciation anxiety. Uh, sh- shigurui, which translates to death frenzy, is what it was labeled as in no, English. No, I don't death, think so. Death frenzy. It is... Uh, the manga is, I think, based on a novel or series of novels. It's a, it's a historical piece that takes place in, like, it's like a... a a samurai uh, setting. Oh, sorry. Basically. I'm looking at the artwork. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> the artwork is incredible. <laughs> and the, the conceit of the show is that it begins with a, uh, a, a demonstration for one of the emperors, or I, I forget, a guy who is like a, a depraved, awful villain. Basically, the bad guy in 13 Assassins mm-hmm. has decided to put on a demonstration uh, of duels but with steel, with steel blades. So just blood, the death sport, basically. And the, it begins with, I think it is actually based on a something that is historically documented, a duel between a swordsman with one arm and one who is blind. Oh, fuck, yeah. And what the show, and like, then it, that, it just begins with that conceit, and then it goes way back in time and it shows you these two guys who are basically the two star students at this uh, school of uh, you know swordsmanship, or I, I forget what you call it, not a dojo or something, but they're they are the two dojo. star they're the two star students at a martial arts school that's run by this old man who is insanely evil and and cruel. And what the show really portrays, if you like again violence and fighting with samurai swords this show is absolutely for you and what it really it has a very Paul Verhoeven quality to it in that it's all exquisitely rendered but what I think what I find the show is really about is about the kind of aesthetics of cruelty and violence which to be honest were really (laughs) really um, I don't know the Japanese turned that into a masterpiece, basically. <laughs> they had uh, such amazing ways of, like, the, the preparation that would go into killing someone and just, like, it, it is a very brutal and nasty show, and uh, the, both the manga and the anime are excellent, and uh, it is really, uh, really nasty and, and weird and, and, and strange, and, like, the, the rendering of the violence in it is incredible, and what I like about it is... It shows in these these sword fights, unlike you know when you see in movies where they're like clanging blades back and forth and like running up and down stairs or whatever. It's like a gunfight. It's like it's decided in like the first two moves, and if you step the wrong way, you're just eviscerated immediately. And it's just like this. It's like a decades long vendetta between these two guys, uh, whose lives become and bodies become deformed grotesquely by this vendetta between them holy shit okay i'm i'm gonna check this out and also i know you'd been like what's good this season and i was like um anything i'm watching i don't really feel would be up your alley but i did find something you might want to check out speaking of like samurai and bloody chambara shit it is called um anglemosis record of mongol invasion And it is what I like to kind of call Dirty Dozen meets Princess Mononoke. It's basically about a group of convicts who are sent to an island off the coast of Japan in, I want to say, like, um, I think the 11th century to fight off a Mongolian invasion. Oh, cool. So it's about this group of convicts who are just fighting off this Mongolian invasion. It's based on true events. I'm really enjoying it. It's just it's just good sword shit. It's bloody. There's decapitations, you know. There's horses getting shot. Speaking of Golden Kamui. <laughs> yeah, speaking um, of luck. Yeah, speaking of <laughs> murdered horses. Um, and that's what I'd recommend in terms of this season. I'm, I've been really enjoying it. Um, like I said, you might want to check it out if you're all for, like, bloody samurai anime. Yeah. The other one is... Don't watch the anime. It's terrible. There was a movie. It wasn't that good, but the manga is superb. It's uh, Blade of the Immortal. Did you ever watch? See that? No, I have not. 
Oh, man. Yeah, same thing. It's the manga's fantastic, bloody-ass Chanbara. It's this dude named Meiji, um, and basically he's a bad guy, and he was like a bad samurai, and through a curse he became immortal. So, like, um, if you cut off his didn't, arm... Didn't didn't Mike just turn that into a movie? Yes. Um, okay, I the okay. Movie, the movie was, everyone's like, uh, we wanted to like it. That's basically the consensus from everyone I've talked to. We wanted to like it. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. And, but yeah, basically he's immortal and he can't really die. And he's like, well, if I kill, like, I think, I don't know, he, he has high standards. If I kill a thousand evil men, then I can die in peace. And, uh, you know, like, like all good animes, he teams up with, like, a wayward young girl and they go on adventures. <laughs> cool yeah man i feel like this has been awesome every time i do a podcast someone shows up and recommends me like good bloody like you know samurai <laughs> manga no again but what i liked about shiguri was that um again like the the violence and the fighting and stuff it's not like that really like over the top like superhero stuff it's like very very grounded and very frightening because of that yeah, and I, I love that shit, and um, Golden Kamui has the same thing, too, and I've talked about this with other guests. It's, um, I, all right, you, you like Deadwood, and... Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's so, probably the best show ever made. I don't, definitely. Maybe. Sopranos, Deadwood, I don't know, they're neck and neck. Why are bringing up the weird, I don't know, it's hard to say. You remember the, the eye-gouging scene, right, in Deadwood? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. So there were these notes that got written and they basically were talking about how they wanted to fight to be. And in order to explain how they want it to be like just brutal, someone just wrote no Kung Fu Cowboys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that is it is one of those things where I love any fight that is not. A la- I mean, and don't get me wrong. Like, I love my I love my elaborate, you know, fighting shit. Me and a friend the other month went and saw five deadly venoms. I love that shit. Sure. And I love the Oh, but you didn't think of this technique. And I countered this one and blah, but he had buttons in his pocket. And that stopped my needle technique. And that's all good. But sometimes you just want a good, really vicious brawl. And I love that fucking fight in Deadwood. I love the shit in Golden Kamui. Like, just people punching each other. And it's not pretty. It's angry and it's mean and it's violent. Yeah. Again, Sugar is a little different because it, it it is all about, like, the technique that you use. and like, But it all comes down to, like, some way of unsheathing your sword that the other person doesn't see coming. Or you're holding the blade in a different way. Or you, like... You, you fake them out and then it's just all over and then like th- there's a scene in it where they like the this the school that they're at they're training at has like a signature move where like the the idea is like to kill someone using the smallest cut possible and it's right across the forehead and it's just like but it goes so deep and it is again terrifying all right i'm 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 fucking checking this out after we're done recording i know what i'm doing <laughs> Awesome. All right. So, like I said, this will thank you so much for being on. And my I got, pleasure. This is a yeah. blast. And I got one final question, and it's it's just me just being a bit of a fangirl. But I know for a fact that you guys do this all the time, and I've just been curious. Um, <clears throat> everyone in Chapo, who's who in Golden Kamoi? <laughs> oh man. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, Felix is. The guy with the plate in his head who's super Yeah, <laughs> I'm screaming. Be- because Sorry, because Felix me. was a wrestler. Uh, Felix does jujitsu. Uh, you know, I think you know. I think he would appreciate the uh, the, the wrestling. Uh, you know, and strength training and weightlifting that that guy does because that's that's what Felix does. <laughs> uh, Virgil, I would say, is definitely the escape artist guy. Sort of, uh, you know. Uh, the smart uh, comic relief, uh, tricky, clever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Matt would probably be, I think, the bear hunter because he has you know, bear <laughs> bear energy, strong bear energy, um, and uh, and uh, the, the the rage of a hunter <laughs> against prey. Um, uh, myself. Okay, no, got to do Amber. Amber, it would be easy to say a Sherpa because you know she's the the female protagonist. But I think I I think Amber 
Uh, like I said, uh, in ep- in episode twelve, I think she's more the uh, the Romany uh, con artist lady who, uh, uh, yeah, who um, a fortune teller. Inkermat. Yes. Uh, and let's see, who am I forgetting here? <laughs> who am I calling? Uh, uh, your current producer and your trader producer, if you okay. want to. I'm just okay. Uh, <laughs> Brendan, Brendan, uh, the sniper guy. You know, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I I think Brendan is the sniper, and I'm. Th- All I mean, right, so compl- so I mean, the nicest nicest gentlest of the chapos is actually the secret sociopath. Great to know. <laughs> um, and current producer Chris Wade, I would say, ooh, man, I'm going through the characters. Uh, okay, current producer Chris Wade is. I'll say he is the immortal Sujimoto because I'm Aww, saving Chris for Chris is Sujimoto? Me- yeah, Chris is Sujimoto, but I'm saving for myself. I am the fucking leader of the prison gang, the ex-samurai. You're Hijikata? Yes. Yeah. The old, uh, the old, like the, the now, like, uh, there's no more uh, samurai in Japan, but he's like, he, he is, fuck Tom Cruise, he is the last samurai. And uh, he has taken up using guns as well. Nice. So, yeah, I'm the I'm the leader of the prison gang. Awesome, awesome. All right. Well, <laughs> the entire reason I, I hustled you to do this was to ask you this. So okay. bye, well, no, no. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Awesome. Um, Will, like I said, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I like I said, I'll definitely check out your recommendations, and I hope you keep uh, watching Golden Kamui when it pops up next season and just uh keep being a weeb because uh, we need more leftist weebs out there and you, you keep us strong man you keep us strong <laughs> <laughs> i am i will continue i will continue to pilot the ava twice a week on chapo Trap awesome House. so on top of a uh, pilot the ava um where where can people find you um if people don't know who you are what do you do i mean not what do you do but you know well as long as you're here check ch- as long as you're here check out my soundcloud at Chapo Trap House. <laughs> Just search Chapo Trap House and you can find me on Twitter at Will Meneker. It's just my name. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Uh, Will, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Um, like I said, guys, hopefully uh, Pod Save Anime will keep going. And if not, um, I convinced 13 people to talk about a cartoon with me. So yay me. <laughs> All right. Have a good night, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Kazu